I'm sure some of you have heard the story about the man who was walking down a road one day, and as he was walking, he wasn't paying attention, and he fell into this pit. It was a pitch black dark pit and and as he fell he grabbed a hold of something and he was holding on for dear life and as he was hanging there holding on for dear life he was yelling help me help me help me multiple people came along a, a subjective person came along and said I feel for you down there an objective person came along and said it's logical that someone walking by would fall into this pit a self-righteous person came along and said, only bad people fall into pits. Confucius came along and said, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't have fallen in your pit. Buddha came along and said, your pit is only a state of mind. A realist came by and said, now that's a pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said things could get worse down there in that pit. A pessimist came by and said things are going to get worse in that pit. But Jesus came along and he looked down in the pit and he saw the man in need. And he said, I can save you. Trust me. Just turn loose and I will save you. The man was hanging there and he thought for a minute and then he yelled, Is there anybody else that's coming by? And that's how it is when we think about the pit that we are in called sin and death. Jesus comes along and he tells us that he has a way to save us from the pit of sin and death. But it sounds so preposterous. It sounds so insane. It doesn't make sense. And we end up trying to figure out is there another way out of the pit. In the book of Proverbs, it says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. In other words, there's a way that seems right. It, it makes sense. It's logical. But even though it seems right and it makes sense with our earthly minds and it's logical in the way we think, it leads to death. Jesus said this. He said the highway is broad. The, the gate is wide that leads to death. And, and many choose that way. But the gate is small, the road is narrow that leads to life. And very few ever find it. You see, the Bible makes it clear from beginning to end that the way to salvation is narrow. There's only one way to salvation, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understood this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God to save all who believe. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this. He said, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. You see, the gospel is in two parts. It begins with the cross, but it ends with the empty tomb. Christ died and Christ rose from the dead. If Christ did not die, you and I could never be saved. But if Christ did not rise from the dead, then you and I could never be saved. And so for the next two weeks, today and next Sunday, we're going to take a look at the two parts of the gospel, the cross and the empty tomb. And so if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. The, the book of 1 Corinthians was, was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a Roman city. Corinth was a pagan city. And, and to this city that had a church in it of believers, Paul wrote this about the cross beginning in verse 18. He said the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But to we who are being saved, we know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who, who ask for a sign from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. Now, there are a number of things that we could say about this passage, but, but today I want us to focus on what this passage says about the cross. And this passage really teaches us two important truths that we need to understand about the cross. The first one is the problem with the cross. Look at verse 18 again, the first part of verse 18. It says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. It's foolish. It, it doesn't make sense. Remember that verse from Proverbs? There's a way that seems right. There's a way that makes sense. There's a way that's logical. But that leads to death. Here's a way that doesn't make sense, but it leads to life. Now look down to verse 22. In verse 22, Paul says this. He says, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So Paul says that the cross offends some, and the cross is nonsense to others. Now why is that? Why is the cross so offensive to some? Why do others see the cross as so absolutely foolish? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to first century Middle East. And, and Rome was in control of the world at this time. They had took over the world by force. And to stay in control, they had rules and they had punishments for those who broke the rules. And one of the punishments they, they used for those who broke the rules was crucifixion. Crucifixion was a terrible form of capital punishment. Now the Romans didn't invent um, crucifixion. It was already around before the Romans came along. But the Romans perfected capital punishment. And the Romans only used capital punishment on the lowest of the low. They only used this form of capital punishment on the worst of the worst. It was heinous. It was torturous. 
It was the most painful form of death in their day. First, you would be flogged. And a, a flogging was a whipping with this instrument called a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails was a, was a small circular piece of wood. And, and in the end of the piece of wood were, were um, attached nine strips of leather. And in those nine strips of leather were sewn stone and glass and metal. And the Roman soldiers would take that cat of nine tails and they would beat without mercy the person who was going to be crucified. I mean, when they would take that, that whip that had sewn in it stones and glass and metal, and that whip would literally go across the back and the stomach and the legs and, and all over. The flesh would peel away from the body like paper being ripped apart. Eusebius, who was, um, Eusebius, who was a third century historian, said this. He said the very muscles, sinews, and bowels were open to exposure. And so they would beat you with that cat of nine tails. Then they would nail you to a cross, nail you to that cross in such a way that you would have to lift yourself up to breathe. If you did not lift yourself up the way that you were hanging, you would literally suffocate to death. And so the person who was being crucified would have to lift themselves up. But remember, their body had been ripped apart by that cat of nine tails. And so as they lift themselves up, their exposed and beaten back was rubbing against that splintered wood of the cross. And so it was very, very torturous. At times, they would have mercy on a prisoner. They would break their legs so that they would suffocate. You say, how is that merciful? Well, to break your legs and suffocate, you would die in a matter of moments. But when you were nailed to a cross, you could literally go on like that for days, days in this excruciating pain. The pain was so agonizing that the Romans came up with a word, excruciatus, which we get our word excruciating from, excruciate. That word literally means of the cross. The cross was so torturous. The cross was so painful that they had to invent a new word to describe it. And if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be nailed to a cross unless you were guilty of treason. One historian said this. He said the empire's policies on crucifixion conditioned Roman citizens to view crucified men in universal contempt. The crucified were either rebellious slaves, the lowest of criminals, or defeated, humiliated foes of the empire. So the Roman world, all of the Gentiles would view anyone who was crucified unworthy of any honor. And so here's Jesus. He was beaten with rods, and then he was flogged with a cat of nine tails, and then he was forced to carry his cross to the place he was going to be executed. They spread out his arms, and they nailed him to that cross. He was stripped naked 
to be humiliated. And along comes Paul preaching that this Jesus who was nailed to the cross naked is the Son of God. God in the flesh. He is the only way to be saved. And one day every knee will bow before him. One day every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And the Romans, the Gentiles were hearing this and they were thinking about the cross and and who was nailed to the cross and they were saying that is foolish. That is preposterous. How could God allow himself to be treated that way? But to the Jews it was even worse. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. To be hung on a tree was a curse according to Jewish law, and being crucified was the epitome. It was the description of being hung on a tree. And the Jews believed that God wouldn't allow any good person to be crucified. So how could God's son, how could the embodiment of good hang on a cross? You see, the Jews not only saw this as offensive, they saw it as blasphemous. But what they didn't realize was that on the cross, Jesus was cursed. The Bible says that Jesus took the penalty of our curse, the curse of our sin upon himself. And it is only because he was cursed that you and I have any hope. When he was on that cross, he took the curse of the sin of the world. He took the curse of my sin. He took the curse of your sin. So Jesus was cursed. Now look at those two words in verse 23 for a moment, offended and nonsense. The word offended is the Greek word scandalon. It's the word we get our word scandalous from or scandal. It's the most offensive thing that could ever happen. The Greek word for, for nonsense is moros. We get our word moron from it. Foolish, idiotic, absolutely insane. It is beyond belief. And so the Bible says that the cross is scandalous to some and it's absolutely insane to others. And what was true back then when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth is still true today. There are many today who see the cross as scandalous. It's it's offensive because the very nature of the cross says you're not good enough and you never will be. The cross says that God hates sin so much that he must deal with it harshly. The cross says you can never pay for your sins by being good enough. You can ever, never earn enough religious points to make you right with God. You're lost. You're headed into hell. And you're never going to be good enough. And we struggle with that. Because we're self-sufficient. And the truth of the matter is, many of us are self-righteous. We think that we can handle our sin problem. We can straighten up. We can do what we need to do. But the Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. The Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory, the standard of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. See, to the cross, some, to some the cross is scandalous. 
But to others, the cross is senseless. It's nonsense. It's foolish. It doesn't make sense. I mean, how, how could God allow his son to die on a cross? Why could God ever say that's the only way to heaven? I mean, the mantra of our day is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe. And how could those of us who believe in the, in the cross ever be so narrow-minded that we believe that there is only one right answer. But the problem the cross has with that is this. If all paths lead to God, if any sincere belief can get you to heaven, then why did Jesus endure the agony of the cross? If the cross wasn't necessary to reconcile lost sinners to a holy God, then why did Jesus do what Jesus did? I mean, in the garden, Jesus cried out, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup of suffering from me. Did you hear that? Before Jesus was crucified, he said, if there is any other way, then let's go with that way. But there was no other way apart from the cross. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come into the Father except through me. And, and to be honest with you, I don't know why we have such a hard time with this. Because in every other area of life, we know that there are right and wrong answers, right? I mean, two times three is six. You spell watch, W-A-T-C-H. Fire is hot. Ice is cold. You can't hold your breath forever. There are things that we know to be true. And yet, when it comes to this thing about Jesus being the only way to heaven, we have a problem with it. It's the problem with the cross. To some, it's scandalous. To other people, it's absolute nonsense. But Paul says this. He says, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And, and that takes us to the second truth, the power of the cross. Look at the last part of, of verse 18. It says, but we who, who are being saved, know it is the very power of God. The cross has the power to do what no one or no other thing can do, and that is save us. But notice what this verse says. It says that the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean we can lose our salvation? Does that mean that we can't know that we're saved until the very end when we stand before the judgment seat of God? Or, or does this mean something else? Does this mean something wonderful? I got some good news for you. This phrase is teaching us something wonderful. It's teaching us that the cross saves us. The cross is saving us. And the cross will save us. You see, the cross saves us from the penalty of sin when we trust Jesus and what he did on the cross. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place. 
Jesus took our sins upon himself. Jesus paid off our sin debt. All of the punishment that should have come to us because of our sin, because of our rebellion, Jesus took on himself. And when we by faith place our trust in him like a child, he saves us from the penalty of sin. And so we have been saved from the penalty of sin. But we are being saved from the power of sin. When we give our lives to Jesus and trust him, we are saying not only yes to God, we are saying no to sin. When we are saved, we are saying, I no longer want sin to rule and reign in my life. But if you've been saved, you know that that doesn't happen immediately, does it? You know that as you go through life, there are ups and downs, there are twists and turns as, as you're in this journey called life. And as you're journeying through life, you realize that many times, maybe oftentimes, you say something you wish you had not said, and you do something you wish you had not done. And like Paul, you say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will ever deliver me? We recognize that, that this battle that we have with sin is real. You, you see, understand, when you're saved, God gives you a new nature. His spirit comes to live in you. But until you die, you still have this old nature. So you have this new nature and this old nature living in one body. And too often than we probably won't, we give in to the old nature. We say things and we do things and we act in way and we have thoughts that immediately when we do, we wish we had not had, and yet we do. And we wonder, how can we ever be delivered from the power of sin? And it is a process. It is a process as we grow in Christ and we surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that's the power of the cross. The cross not only saved us, the cross is saving us as we understand what it means to crucify ourselves with Christ. That's why, by the way, we're patient with one another. That's why, by, by the way, we forgive one another. That's why, by the way, we show mercy to brothers and sisters who fall and who stumble and who fail. Why? Because it is a process and it is a lifelong process and none of us have arrived at the finish line. If you think you have, I'll put a couple of people around you for a day and they'll show you you haven't. We are all in, in process being saved from the power of sin. And that is, by the way, why we are very patient with new believers. Amen? Somebody gets saved and gives their heart to Jesus and he changes them on the inside and, and we see them doing something or saying something that we who are more seasoned believers would never ever do. And we go, I don't even know if they're saved. Jesus may be up in heaven saying, well, I don't even know if you're saved. Because it is a process. It is a process. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. 
We are being saved from the power of sin. And praise God, one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. There is coming a day when those of us who have trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection to save us will live with him forever in his kingdom and we will be completely free from sin. That's what heaven is. Heaven is living with God free from sin and death. Now, a lot of people will say, how could a loving God ever send some people to heaven and other people to hell? And that question really misunderstands heaven and hell. You see, the lust, the anger, the greed, the selfishness that, that still sometimes reigns in my heart, I will one day be cleansed from all of that. Heaven is, is God saying to me, come and I will free you from lust. I will free you from anger. I will free you from greed. I will free you from selfishness. Come and be healed. And, and in heaven, all that sin nature is completely taken away. And hell, most simply, is for those who say no thanks. I want my lust. I want my anger. I want my greed. I, I want my selfishness. Hell is for those who say, I don't want to be healed of all these destructive, sinful things in my life. And so God says, okay, have it your way. I'll give you what you want. See, we think about hell as punishment from God, and we certainly deserve punishment because of our sin and rebellion. But hell is much more than punishment. Hell is protection. Hell is protecting the peace and the love and the purity of his kingdom from those who refuse to be healed from the destructive power of sin. Hell is to keep the destructive power of sin out of God's good, perfect kingdom. You see, that's the power of the cross. Jesus saved us. Jesus is saving us. And Jesus will save us. Oh, the power of the cross. The cross shouts out to the world, God hates sin so much that he must punish it. But it also shouts out, God loves sinners so much that the only payment for our sins is His Son. Where are you? Have you experienced the power of the cross? Do you want to? Before we take communion this morning, I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. with your head bowed and with your eyes closed. If you're here and, and as you're sitting there with your eyes closed with a heart that is open to God, if you're here and you say, Rocky, I've, I've never done this. I've never really trusted Christ alone to save me, but today I'm wanting to do that then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer right now with a humble heart to God. Dear God, I come to you this morning 
humbly acknowledging my sin. I know that I've disobeyed you. I know I've lived life my way. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. Today I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you to save me. I'm trusting you to lead me. I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come into my life and take control. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me.